2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Josh Winning about his fantasy novel, The Shadow Glass. Josh is a senior film writer at Radio Times and writes about film for several other publications. Two of his many career highlights include meeting Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy and eating breakfast with zombies on the set of the Walking Dead. In this episode, we discuss his obsession of learning about story structure, how he writes in a filmic way, and his interesting route to getting an agent. But first, here's Josh with an excerpt from The Shadow Glass.
3: The hall was even more cluttered than he remembered. Knickknacks and keepsakes crowded the passage, giving the impression of a pokey antique shop. A grandfather clock stood surrounded by bone-dry potted plants, while Japanese Shadow Glass posters were mounted on the walls. A shelving unit groaned with VHS tapes, DVDs, a Walkman and a cassette tape library, and there were books everywhere, feathered with age and heaped amid swirling dust motes. Jack's neck creaked as he turned his head to take it all in. The curios were familiar, but also different to how he remembered them, as if he were viewing them through mottled glass. They looked decayed, relics from another time, a life he had almost forgotten he'd lived. And this was just the hall. From where he stood, he glimpsed the rooms and passages beyond, wending in a disordered muddle, combining to form a house of riddles, a place in which to get lost. He stilled, frowning at the distant point where the back hall turned into the kitchen. He was sure he'd seen movement there. He pictured his father still roaming Ketu House, tall and narrow as a telegraph pole, shuffling in slippers and a moth-eaten cardigan, fingers scratching his beard, He could still hear the whispers of a man who had long since relinquished his grip on reality. In a forgotten time, in a forgotten world, deep within a forgotten chamber few have ever seen, the shadow glass sees all. Jack gritted his teeth and shook off the image. That was years ago. Bob was dead and the house was empty, of anything living at least. He couldn't get distracted. Aiming for the rickety staircase, he went further inside his fingers tapping one of the bottles in a drink's cabinet. He recalled being 14 and smashing bottles in the street, furious at his father for his latest drunken tirade. The memory stung, and even though Jack wasn't a drinker, his mouth felt parched. He uncapped the bottle, taking a defiant swig as he started up the stairs. The whiskey seared the back of his throat.
2: Hi, Josh, welcome to the podcast. I'm really pleased to have you here with me today to talk about the shadow glass.
3: Hello, thank you for having me. It's good to be here.
2: Can you start by introducing your novel and telling us the plot, please?
3: Yes. Uh so the plot of the shadow glass, it's all about this guy called Jack Corman. Uh, he's this like directionless 30-something and the son of one-time movie director Bob Corman. In the 1980s, Bob made The Shadow Glass, which was a puppet fantasy film that bombed on release and turned him into something of an eccentric recluse, uh, kind of ruined the relationship between Bob and his son Jack. So when Bob dies in present day, his son Jack returns to the family home uh, to sort of see what he can sell off basically to get rid of his debt. And uh, he is stunned and slightly disturbed (laughs) when the puppets from his dad's film come to life in the attic and they drag him into a real-world quest involving scaly villains and a bunch of movie-loving fan kids.
2: (laughs) What a brilliant way to describe it, and it's such a treat for, like, 80s movie movie fans, and we're going to talk about your your inspiration behind it. But I was wondering, obviously, it's heavily inspired by um, all these incredible, iconic movies, and you're clearly a huge fan, but I was wondering whether the idea was something you've been working on for a long time.
3: It's, yeah, it, the germ of the idea was basically I wanna write about movie puppets because I just thought that was such a great topic for a story um, and I missed I missed all of those films from the 80s um, that I grew up on and loved and that, that real sort of like tangibility of an 80s puppet fantasy film where they're just so charming and just so entertaining. And so, yeah, that was the germ of the idea was I want to do a puppet fantasy story, but it didn't really come to life in my mind until I pivoted the attention more towards Jim Henson, who obviously was the director of Labyrinth, co-directed The Dark Crystal, best known for The Muppets. Um, And when I discovered that he... Uh, so his he did Dark Crystal, which was sort of like met with slight bemusement by audiences and critics alike, and then he did Labyrinth, which he thought might sort of help him break through to um, sort of the mainstream family audience in a way that he kind of had done with the with the Muppets, and then that kind of f- essentially underperformed commercially, and the the story was that he found that really difficult you know his his son talks about how it left him heartbroken and um, it took him a long time to sort of get over it and then he sadly died um, sort of a couple of years later and he never really got to see the film emerge as the cult classic beloved Mm. cult classic that it's become and something about that just made me feel so sort of it was so such a bittersweet notion mm. um, and that it kind of fired up this idea of movie puppets and gave me a, a story um, to explore really
2: yeah I guess it gave you the kind of like emotional core of the story really and and yeah, without absolutely. that without that I guess it was hard to to frame it as kind of just a puppet story and it's a lot more than that in the novel
3: yeah I think that the, the emotion of it was was sort of like the most important part. You could, you could have had just like a fun, silly jaunt with movie puppets, but I think it would quite quickly um, sort of, I don't know, lose interest maybe. Like I think that all stories should make you feel something. And I think the reason that stories and books and movies are so popular is because people want to feel something. And I think that, that's yeah so that that's the that's the way the book came alive was finding that emotional core and it mm-hmm. was it was jack it was jack's relationship with his father that really kept me going and kept me motoring through the the first draft and beyond <laughs>
2: <laughs> so anyone that's been following you on twitter will have seen you have been doing these kind of like 80s movie re-watches and so we've already obviously mentioned that you're a huge fan and heavily inspired but how did the movies help with the structure of the novel or did they not help did they kind of distract you from the the form of of writing a novel?
3: I'm obsessed with structure I find it like endlessly fascinating I've read all the books you know I've read (laughs) John York's is it out of the woods or into the woods? Into like I never the woods, yeah. <laughs> into, <laughs>
2: yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I've read that, um, you know, I've read various others. And it's hilarious how even the best, most complicated stories, they really do fit that very sp- specific structure. Mm. Um, and sometimes when I'm sort of plotting something, that can feel restrictive. And sometimes it's actually it can sort of bring on like a eureka moment because you can reach a point and think oh well where do i go from here and if you know that this is the all is lost moment it's great because you can go okay well what is the all is lost moment sort of as we as we said like emotionally in this story mm. um and so i, I yeah I, I think that structure can really help and movies particularly um mainstream movies they get such a bad rap a lot of the time I think mainstream films, but a lot of them have structured just down to a, a sort of a perfect mm. art. You can see the inciting incident, you can see the midpoint. and I do think that I've learned so much from watching movies because you almost get this um, I think everyone has it I don't think people really realize it, but people have an innate understanding of story because when they say oh this is rubbish, um, it's often because it's not quite hitting those structural um sort of beats, I think. Yeah. So I was very aware of all of those incidents um, when I was when I was plotting. I actually saw V. E. Schwab do a talk last week. Um, she's obviously like a fantastic fantasy author. And she said that she really does see a movie playing in her mind. And what she's doing is transcribing it so that readers can experience the same movie. And I kind of feel exactly the same way. Like when she said that, I was like, you've just stolen that right out of my (laughs) brain. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Movies completely sort of dictated the the structure and pacing of the book.
2: Yeah. I was going to say to you, your your book reads in in such a filmic way that very much like you were describing I could see it playing in my head so you've kind of answered this already but were you were you transcribing that movie when you were writing it then
3: yeah and it's frustrating when the story isn't playing ball because (laughs) you know you can see it you can I think you can see the feeling of it you know you know what you're trying to get to and you know that something has to happen at this point but it's not always easy to figure out exactly what um like there was a, there's a sequence um in the second act of the book where it takes place at a fantasy convention and I rewrote that that moment it was in somebody's house it was in somebody else's house it was like you know at a studio and then eventually I was like what am I doing none of this is working <laughs> obviously it should be at a convention and it was like this aha moment yeah where yeah. what i could see um is there's this phrase in yoga where they say see feelingly and i think that when you're writing often you see feelingly but you qu- maybe you can't quite figure out the specifics um so yeah i'm i'm very pleased that it did play out like a movie because that's what I was trying to do. Yeah,
2: I'm amazed to hear you say that the convention thing was a, a a later thing that came to you because to me it's like it can't be anything else but a convention. Like it's such a great <laughs> yeah. set piece, you know.
3: <laughs> I know. Sometimes you're like, what was I thinking? Why was I getting <laughs> into such a? Uh, you know, often the the, most, the simplest solution is the um, the best, and I was mm. being stupid by not just seeing that, uh, you know, I was too busy trying to be clever and twisty and all that kind of stuff.
2: <laughs> so we've mentioned that like, the emotional core of the story was something that really helped you build the novel, to, like put the pieces together. One of the key aspects is that relationship between parent and child, father and son, um, Jack mm. and Bob. And can we say daddy issues is such a key part of eighties <laughs> and nineties kind of family movies. So how did that relationship develop then? Was it always father and son? Did you always know that had to be kind of like the central conflict?
3: Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was always going to be daddy issues. And I'm really glad <laughs> you said that because I read a review. <laughs> that, where there was, said, there's
2: nothing else. It had to be daddy issues.
3: <laughs> I, I read a review where somebody said the book is, has a lot of daddy issues. And I was like, at first I was like, humph. But then I thought, you know what? I'm just going to bloody own that. And I put it on my infographic. About I saw, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm, it is about daddy issues. Yeah, is. and, and that's unapologetic in the book.
2: I don't see that as uh, a bad thing. But to me, that's at like no, the heart of so many family films that I can think of. I mean, Star Wars, for God's sake, you know, daddy issues. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Absolutely. And it was only after I had actually finished the book, long after I'd finished the book, that I realized that's the case, that there are so many 80s films that are about mm. efficient parent figures or sort of corrupted parent figures or kids trying to understand their parents. Um so even though that wasn't something I planned consciously, um, I think it was probably playing around in my psyche somewhere. I always think that I'm um like, like an instinctive storyteller which sounds like a boast but it's not a boast because it's um actually quite annoying sometimes that you can't quite like I was saying can't quite get the specifics but Mm. the the instinctive stuff I think you can sometimes question it and sort of question it and edit it out whereas often the instinctive stuff leads to elements that feel right rather than just being meticulously researched I think if I if I'd sat down and watched sort of you know twenty eighties fantasy films before right before I started writing it probably would have scared me off actually writing it to mm. be honest so I didn't do that I actively didn't do it and I actually just wrote from my memory of, of my memory of those films which I do know very well and the way that I, I felt about them.
2: Did you go back to them when you were editing and when you were kind of trying to build it up from kind of the, the early the early drafts?
3: No, I've, I didn't go back to them really until we started doing the 80s Fantasy Film Club on, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I think I was a bit scared to, I don't really know why. I think I was just very conscious of trying to make The Shadow Class its own thing. Mm-hmm. And even though obviously all these films have bled in to the book, I was conscious of not trying to um, actually properly you know, rip them off or... Yeah um just steal massive chunks out of them so I wanted to try to do my own thing
2: <laughs> so the way you've kind of looked at structure and kind of learned this structure has it ruined movies forever for you and books forever for you now because you're forever looking for those beats
3: well my yeah in some ways it means I haven't got an off switch um you know I've I've been a, a movie critic for 15 15-ish years and before that I was studying film at university so the the sort of like analysis component of watching anything is always playing in my mind um, and it's very difficult to turn it off unless something is just like exceptional or mm. very weird. <laughs> um, yeah so in some ways it's it. I did used to find it a bit like oh I can't watch anything now without engaging the the analytic part of my brain but in other ways i actually quite like it i quite like the um i like picking up on stuff and i like picking things apart and trying to understand what makes them tick like i think Mm. storytelling is such a craft and such a puzzle and when somebody does it really well i want to know how and why we think it's good you know i i always think this is just like complete brain fart. But I often think, what if aliens came down and watched our stories? Would they get the same emotional response? Like, would they actually? Would they just think, "What the hell is all of this?" <laughs> would they understand, like, the concept of fantasy and make believe and, and emotional relationships, or would they just be completely baffled by it all?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and would they kind of, like you say, appreciate the? The structure and have that emotional yes, response exactly. at the end of it.
3: <laughs> Can you imagine if aliens are like, well, that's structurally structurally unsound. Yeah. No.
2: <laughs> so, speaking about your journalism, obviously you're a critic for the Radio Times, and you've been writing about film for a long time. Well, how is journalism different from writing a novel? There has there been times where kind of you have to take your journalist hat off to write your book or has it been helpful
3: um it's only really been helpful i think um it's it kind of has taught me so many um things about writing about discipline um you know i've written i started out writing 100 word capsule reviews of films like really short reviews which is basically three sentences how do Mm. you how do you sum up uh, an entire experience of watching a film in three sentences? But, um, you know, that's that's um, a skill that you can learn. And so, you know, going from writing those tiny little capsule reviews to then writing longer reviews, 800 words, writing features, which are like 2000 words, all these little different things that you write as a journalist taught me how to write basically. And I think that whenever I'm writing stor- uh, novels, I still feel ridiculous when I say I write novels,
2: um, <laughs>
3: but you know, I do. I um, do. I do, yes, I have, which, yeah. Um, I do still use the journalistic principle of, we're paying somebody or someone's paying me to write this piece by the word. I'm getting paid by the word. And so every single word really has to earn its place in this article. And I think the same applies to a book. I think that every single page, uh, every single word in a a book really does need to sell itself. And if it doesn't, then why the hell is it in there? Mm. So yeah, tons of stuff I've learned from journalism that applies seamlessly to to novel writing. I can't really think of any ways that it doesn't um, other than you've got to make it all up yourself. (laughs) Yeah, that is very true. Yeah, like a couple of the articles in the book um, that I wrote, they're interviews, they're they're like imagined interviews. And at first you're a bit like, oh, I don't really know what they would say. Like, can I not just go and get my transcript? Oh, it doesn't exist because you've made this up. (laughs) You've made
2: it, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, so one detail I absolutely loved about your novel was all these little extra bits you've got between chapters. So you've got reviews, DVD commentary, magazine interviews. You've got all these kind of like script snippets and it really helps to establish the film as like this cult classic. Was that something Mm. you'd always planned to include? Because I guess you had so much fun writing those parts Um, or was that something added much later?
3: They were integral. They were planned right from the beginning. Even my chapter outlines I I had a a document that was a breakdown of all the chapters and every single one in between them had interstitial number one, interstitial number two and I would try to find ways where each article would relate to something that was happening in the next chapter. Mm. So there's one interstitial that is the track listing for the soundtrack for the movie and then in the next chapter the soundtrack does play you know, in the background to the scene. Um, and it was just like a really, it was a fun challenge. I wanted to see how it worked basically. And if I could make it work, I had done something similar in, pre, in a previous book where I just had sort of four or five scattered articles throughout, but nothing to the degree of like this has 26 chapters. So that means there are 26 found documents as well. Mm. which was quite intimidating when my agent would say, oh, I think we need to cut this chapter in half. And I'd be like, oh, that means I need to write another Mm. interstitial (laughs) and run out of ideas. Um, Honestly, they were were
2: amazing. They were so good. Oh, thank you. Uh, I feel like (laughs) if the puppets hadn't come alive, I think you'd be forgiven for thinking the shadow glass really existed. Like, that's how convincing it is.
3: (laughs) Yay, that's exactly what I wanted. Because... (laughs) The book is, is um, also quite heavily inspired by this, there's these gorgeous hardback collectible books called The Ultimate Guide to Labyrinth, The Ultimate Guide to the Dark Crystal. And they are essentially high-end scrapbooks, which take you through the making of those movies. You've got reproductions of handwritten notes by Jim Henson. You've got sort of like artwork, you've got script pages, So that's the one thing that I really did delve into before I started writing The Shadow Glass, was I looked through those books and found inspiration from them. And it just sort of like it worked thematically as well, because I wanted the reader to almost feel like a fan of The Shadow Glass, Mm. which kind of sounds a bit insidious. but, (laughs) um, But I wanted them to really feel like this is a real film and you love it. And that was like a really... Quick way of doing that and mm-hmm. like conveying all that exposition. Um, yeah, it was, it was really fun. I really enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, I, I really enjoyed those bits. I think because, you know, personally, I love reading all the, like the behind the scenes stuff of film. So it did feel like this film had existed and that was really, yeah. really cleverly done. Oh, thanks. So you. <laughs> I need to ask you now whether you are basically Bob Corman, the creator of The Shadow Glass. I want to know. Your world building is so good. And really, you've got a story within a story. You've got to build the the movie world and you've got to build this world where the shadow glass existed. So are you someone that has hundreds of little notebooks or scraps (laughs) of paper with all your kind of like world building creation on it?
3: Yes, I do have a notebook. <laughs> and you can see it. I did a I did a video with a friend on Twitter that shows my book journey. And you can see the notebook right at the start of that video. Um, and it's, it's um, a notebook that my mum gave to me when I was a teenager. And it was so nice that I never wrote in it. I just sort of kept it. And it's been with me through, I'm going to say, 10, 11 house moves that I've always kept hold of it. Um, and she passed away when I was 21, which made it even more kind of like, if I'm going to use it, it better be for something good. Mm. Um, and something about the timing and the themes of the shadow glass. I was like, do you know what? I think this is the notebook for this. And so I, I kind of spent a good six months before I wrote a single word of the shadow glass, um doodling creating characters um brainstorming sort of like everything from like the merchandise that existed in this world t-shirts soundtracks puppets um cuddly toys and you know things like that all the way to um figure out the mythology you know what does the shadow glass actually do that took forever actually I did write in the book what does the shadow glass do underlined (laughs) a thousand times you know brainstormed a bunch of rubbish um, until I actually distilled it down to what fitted thematically and emotionally Mm. Um, so yeah it was it was again another way of approaching the story and and yeah it was yeah again it was really fun and it just poured out of me it was one of the this never really happens but it's just one of those things where yeah, clearly some latent parts of subterranean part of my brain is just full of love for 80s fantasy. And even though I always knew I kind of loved it, I don't think I knew to what degree until I started <laughs> doing these notes and it all just came pouring out of me. It was like an exorcism of the fluffiest variety. <laughs>
0: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: And I wanted to talk about your kind of representation of fans and fandom and kind of nerd culture really in the book because Mm -hmm. it's done in such a positive loving way and I think quite often in fiction and in media in general geeks and fans get such a bad rap so was it important to you to write a novel that was like a a love letter to these fans and cult movies alongside with them
3: yeah again it's such a disappointing answer it was again just like (laughs) an instinctive thing (laughs) where i i am a fan i hang out with fans i i always have Um, and i've got nothing but affection for people who love you know geeky stuff like buffy the vampire slayer and star wars and muppets and um there is a joy to it there's such a joy to it and yeah i guess that they're almost like an easy target Mm. Um, but there are certain films like galaxy quest that did fandom beautifully um, I think that's one that I did watch last year, having forgotten that it was about fandom. And I was like, oh God, okay. Yeah, that's definitely, that was somewhere lodged in my brain and it's come out in the shadow glass. Um, but I do think that fandom has definitely become such an entity of its own. It bears it bears sort of like discussion, um, you know, fan fiction, enormous mm-hmm. conventions a massive people fly in from all over the world to go to these conventions i guess
2: they've a lot they've become a lot more mainstream as well like you say they are talked about a lot more
3: yeah absolutely yeah they've like the geeks now rule the world there was a time, there was a time when we were sort of like shut away in well i wasn't
2: <laughs> we were
3: shut away in basements in america um sort of like nerdily drooling over stuff and now the basement door has been opened i guess because we've all I guess because we're like grown-ups essentially. Yeah. We're grown-ups now. And we're telling people, no, we love this stuff and we're allowed to. Um mm. and don't not try to and mock stop it. Us. Yeah. And places like Forbidden Planet that are like Mecca for for nerds and geeks. They've made it okay to be a fan, which is lovely.
2: Yeah. So I want to speak about your book deal and how you got your agent and all the kind of early stages <laughs> of your journey because it's such an innovative book and very different and I wondered was it a difficult book to kind of pitch for an agent or to sell to get your book deal
3: it I knew it was kind of an odd sell but I also knew that there had to be readers out there like me who loved the stuff that I love um mm. and would enjoy this story but yeah I did I did pitch it around and um, I did have some interest. Uh, I had sort of like requests for full reads and stuff. Um, I had, you know, flat nose, flat rejections. Um, and it turned out that actually the agent that I signed with, it's one of those ridiculous things that you're a bit like, oh, well, that's not really achievable. But it was my agent. I met her at the young adult literary convention before she was an agent a couple of years ago. And we just had a little chat and And I bumped into her at a book event a couple of years after that, when she'd become an agent and I pitched her the shadow glass. And I had no idea that she was a massive 80s movies and horror fan. Um, And she was like, yeah, pitch it to me and we'll see. And I did. And she ended up signing me and she ended up being the absolute perfect agent, which I would never have guessed um so it's one of those horrible like oh you had to be right place right time stories that mm. probably fill would have filled me with despair trying to get an agent and get a book deal but um but I guess the 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 takeaway if you want to say the takeaway of the story is that there are so many different ways for this to happen and all you can really do is just keep trying and put yourself out there it is disheartening it I'm sure you found the same.
2: Yeah, I mean I've got a very different uh story about how I got my agent. I didn't query in the kind of traditional way. And there are so yeah. many different ways and it, like you say it's infuriating for people that don't have an agent and they're sitting there thinking it's all right for you you've got yours in a, yeah, in I a different way. But I, you know it, there's no there's no prescriptive way of getting an agent and if you have opportunities to network and meet people and submit to competitions or anything like that that will get your self noticed and your work noticed then Absolutely. i would say go for it because you may not get an agent through querying but you might get them another way so i don't i, I see what you mean it, it can be frustrating if you're thinking well you know it, it does there is a little bit of luck involved i guess and a bit of kind of right place right time but um yeah it happens so
3: (laughs) yeah and also you do you kind of I know this is equally crass but you do almost kind of make your own luck because you if you choose to put yourself out there and you choose to go to these events like that book event where I met my agent I wasn't going to go I wasn't in the mood Mm -hmm. I was going on my own I knew that I wouldn't know anybody there apart from the authors um and I was like oh do you really want to do this it's winter it's cold it's dark I was like come on just go and actually it was the best thing i could have done so yeah and i i think you're right it's like it's so easy for um agents and publishers to reject an email because it's faceless but if you're if if they see your name and they remember that they met you um you know you're halfway through the door then
2: yeah definitely so along those lines if you can Can you give me your top three tips for anyone working on their novel at the moment?
3: Okay. Uh, (laughs) Just to put you,
2: just to put you on the spot there.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think number one is perspective. And this is something I learned really late. And I was kicking myself when I kind of was told this. Um, I'd given the shadow glass to Um, a family member to read and she's an English lit major. So she's, she knows, she's knows the, she's studied English. Whereas I am not a trained writer, apart from being a journalist. Um, And she sent me an email, a great long email talking about perspective. And I was like, oh my God, you're so right. I'm like, how have I missed this? Um, And what she basically said was that um, a story is interesting and engaging because you're seeing it through the very unique perspective of the main character or characters. So what is that perspective and how can you adhere to it sort of absolutely to the nth degree? Um, And it's tough. There are different ways you can do it. You know, there's different sort of um, narrative ways of doing it. Obviously there's like prose, description, dialogue, reactions, all that kind of stuff. Um, and you can mix them all up, but I do really now think perspective is number one. It really is, because it gives you your in, it gives you your in into the story, and it makes that story utterly unique to that character and to that to the readers. I think number two is setting, which I think Ali Wilkes also said. Yes, she did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really think setting. I can't. I can't really break a story until I know the setting um, because it's such a cliche to say it's a character, but it is, it really is a character. It, it, For me, like we were talking about the idea of a movie playing in your mind. If I can't see the scene, I can't write it. If I haven't got an immediate snapshot in my mind, it's basically impossible to write it. So I need to have the a very specific idea of the town they're in or the house they're in because it it makes it easier to what's it called what do they call it um in they call it blocking in filmmaking where you block a shot so you you map out basically where the character is in relation to everything else in the world so i think setting is a big one so that's number two and number three is figure out what your story is actually saying. You've got the you've got the plot, which is stuff that happens, but what is what's the theme? I guess like theme is big. I think, hmm. and what what are you trying to convey with this story? So even though on the surface, the Shadow Glass is about puppets going on a quest, you know, fun times. Um, Underneath all of that, it is like you said. It is a father-son story. It's also a story about failure or perceived failure. It's also about fandom. Um, so, and I don't, I don't know if you need to know exactly what you're saying, but I think there needs to be a sense of the philosophy. Like reviewers who've who've reviewed the Shadow Glass, a lot of them are sort of hugely intelligent and insightful reviews where people have picked up on stuff in the book but they've made it sound way more impressive (laughs) than anything i was trying to do um but i do still think that you need to have a general idea of what you're trying to say and you can refine it over numerous drafts you don't need to know immediately i think often you can have a general idea for a story and then the story does start to tell you what it's actually about which sounds bonkers, but is kind of true, I think. Hmm. So you've,
2: you've reminded me of a, a moment in your novel where you've got a blog post that was written by Bob where he says basically how the journey of the story is the important part rather than the big climaxes or the set <laughs> pieces. And that is what I'm getting from you there with your kind of think of the theme, think of the kind of emotions that you want the reader to feel. That seems to be your advice there.
3: Yeah well that I wrote that blog post because I was like oh god I'm coming up to the big finish I better just warn people that you know if it's not the best ending you've ever read (laughs) it's okay because we've been on a journey it's like me trying to have a conversation with a disclaimer
2: yeah yeah
3: absolutely yeah (laughs) I think I originally wrote I think it was slightly different originally my first draft of that was when endings are good boy that's something to write home about and that suddenly felt really egotistical. Like I was saying, <laughs> guys, this is going to be good. And that's not what I intended at all. So,
2: um, And so you, you were putting go, the pressure on yourself there.
3: Exactly. So you can always go back and refine what you're, try- you're actually trying to say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so we've talked movies. Can you think of any book comparisons now that readers who maybe are thinking of what to read next, and they, and they can see your title and think, oh, it's like that, and I enjoyed that, so I'll enjoy the Shadow Glass." What are your kind of comp titles?
3: Uh, the big one for me the whole way through was Ready Player One, which is more of a hard sci-fi kind of read, but in terms of the, the 80s feeling, the nostalgia, the kind of Easter eggs, and the, the quest, um, that was very much a touchstone and I love that book it's fantastic the anything by Grady Hendrix I love and I would die happy to be compared to Grady Hendrix I'm not going to do it myself I'm just going <laughs> to put that name out there and let you guys decide okay. <laughs> and my agent came up with so my when my agent pitched it out she said it was like dark crystal meets about a boy by a Nick Hornby
2: okay And that
3: hadn't I'm not in any way literary um but when she said that I was like yes I could see I that. do kind
2: of see that actually now you said it I would yeah. never have put that out there but I I can kind of see it finally I'm just wondering what you're working on next are you writing anything new at the moment and can you give us a little teaser about what it might be about
3: I've finished my my next so shadow class was my, my adult debut so I finished mm-hmm. my next adult book not to be confused with adult entertainment, it is a, <laughs> a, an age genre, not <laughs> a description of content. <laughs> um, so I've, I've finished that, and that is very much in the horror camp. Um, like Shadow Glass is fantasy with bits of horror, and the new book is pretty much pure horror. Similar, similarly movie themed. No puppets this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's finished. And I'm about to embark on Camp Nano Rimo, which is the April yeah. edition, basically of Naval National Novel Writing Month. I always want to say Naval. It's like National <laughs> Naval Gazing Month. <laughs> it
2: it might be that if you get stuck.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've just basically killed myself plotting out a new book, just so that I, when I do tackle Nano I'll always have something to write when I sit down so
2: well best of luck with uh, the NoWriMo in April and uh, yeah congratulations on the shadow glass I hope it goes really well
3: thank you so much I'm really thrilled that you enjoyed it and I've started your book and I'm loving it oh Um, thank you so much (laughs) I cannot wait to get more into it it's so oh my god it's so atmospheric and sort of unnerving
2: Thank so you. That's I'm, that's that's I'm... the vibes I was going for. So uh, thanks very
3: much. <laughs>
2: you nailed it. <laughs> Yay! Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Josh. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks, Chloe. That was Josh Winning talking about his fantasy novel, The Shadow Glass, which is out now and available to buy. Before I go, let me just tell you about two events I've got coming up where I'm hosting this podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist Live. First, I'm going to be talking to three authors at the Being a Writer Festival hosted by the Literary Consultancy on June the 28th. Then on July the 22nd, I'm going to be talking to Louise Morrish about her historical novel at Jericho Writers Summer Festival. Both of these events are virtual, so you can join anywhere in the world and even ask questions. And if you're interested in hearing me talk in person about my novel, The Sea Women, I'll be at the Margate Bookie on Thursday the 2nd of June. Tickets for all these events are available to buy, and I'll put all the details in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.